Uh, the start of the week and plenty to catch your ear from the day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. You know, most of the people, most of the true fanatics who are at the tip of the spear there, they thought that Trump was going to remain in the White House and they were going to prevent Biden from taking office. So they weren't concerned about the ramifications of their own of their actions and different stories going around i hear i believe there are 95 of us here in this hotel in izmir in turkey and um we still don't know if we have to pay for everything leonardo da vinci kept pigeons and he because he was fascinated by flying all right um so he wanted to figure out how to fly um Uh, and did he come to you on this psychedelic trip yeah and we'll start in the morning and on today with Claire Byrne, marking 200 days of war in Ukraine. Yesterday marked 200 days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And in the past couple of days, Ukraine has announced fresh gains in its counter-offensive. UK defence officials estimated that Ukraine has recaptured territory of more than 3,000 square kilometres in the Kharkiv region in a massive show of strength. Well, Russia retaliated last night by causing power cuts across eastern Ukraine. In a moment, I'll be speaking to Dr. Patrick Bury, Senior Lecturer in Security at the University of Bath. But earlier I spoke to journalist Vladimir Solohub, who's on the ground near Kharkiv, and he described what had happened there over the weekend. The last 48 hours have been um, very significant here in Kharkiv and Kharkiv region. Uh, Ukrainian army has started this uh, counteroffensive uh, both in south and uh, in the east. And uh, a Ukrainian army has regained a lot of territory here in Kharkiv region. Uh, literally over the past uh, 24 hours, uh, the Russian troops uh, have been uh, pushed almost uh, all the way to uh, the, the Russian border. Uh, major towns uh, such as Valaklia, Kupansk and Izum have been uh, taken back uh, from the Russians. Uh, and this counteroffensive and regaining of the territories is um, happening as we speak. But we're hearing about the retaliation that is coming with power outages as a result of Russian shelling at civilian infrastructure. Have you heard about that? Are you seeing that? Uh, Claire, not only heard, we experienced a total blackout yesterday uh, night in Kharkiv. Uh, the entire city was plunged into darkness uh, around um, 9 p.m. Uh, local time. Uh, as a result, as we later uh, learned um, of the rocket hit of a major uh, power supply station uh, here near the city. Uh, and uh, not only Kharkiv, um, later on we found out uh, from the report uh, that uh, the blackout has been across uh, several uh, regions uh, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, So um, obviously uh, Russians are trying to retaliate for for their defeat here in the east by uh, hitting uh, critical infrastructure. Can you explain how this has happened? How have Ukrainian forces managed to do this? Um, Claire, it's uh, obviously uh, some very difficult to explain from from military standpoint, but um, our understanding is that it was a complete surprise for the Russian army. Uh, Ukrainians have been announcing and have been talking a lot uh, about the counteroffensive in the south uh, with an attempt to take over the key city of Kherson. And all of the attention, including the media attention, has been drawn there. And then all of a sudden we learn that uh, their counteroffensive happening here in, in Kharkiv region in, in the east. Uh, most likely uh, Russians were also uh, caught uh, off guard. As we understand, most likely they've uh, sent uh, 
uh, troop reinforcements, and they sent most of their troops uh, to the south uh, to try and hold off Kherson, uh, and obviously uh, that weakens their positions uh, here. And once um, Ukrainians, uh, also with the help of Western weapons, uh, managed to cut off the logistics supplies of ammunition uh, by blowing up um, ammo depots and blowing up bridges here in the Kharkiv region and started advancing quite rapidly, uh, to be honest. Uh, definitely Russians were caught off guard and uh, uh, Ukraine's uh, defense minister uh, was referring to them as a runaway army because they started basically abandoning they, their positions and running away, retreating uh, into, into, into Russian territory. And what's the likelihood now of Russia being able to quickly change its focus from the south to the east and rebalancing this? Claire, I don't think that um, some sort of counteroffensives from the Russian side are possible here in the Kharkiv region. Uh, but of course, Russians are still controlling large swaths of territory in, um, in, in, in the east, including Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Uh, that's where most likely uh, the next phase of Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, will take place. Ukrainian officials are already talking about uh, potentially taking back the key city of Lysychansk, which is already in in Luhansk region. Uh, so um, it's, it's, it's difficult to predict the next moves, but taking back the territory which has been uh, recently liberated by the Ukrainian army will be very difficult for Russians. Vladimir Solohub there in Ukraine. Then Claire spoke to Dr. Patrick Bury, Senior Lecturer in Security at the University of Bath. So what's your assessment of what happened over the weekend, the advancement of the Ukrainian army? I think, in a nutshell, it's the most significant defeat of the Russians since their withdrawal from Kiev, Claire. Um, it has, they've been, as your, your previous contributor just said, the Russians, the Ukrainians have been keeping the Russians um, off balance by saying we're going to attack here and then doing something else and then shifting um, their, their activity to another area and keeping the Russians guessing. And essentially what they've done in the last couple of days is actually attack on two axes. They have attacked down the south. It just hasn't been successful for a number of different reasons. But up in the north, uh, exactly as I think it was Vladimir said, they've pulled... The Russians have pulled troops, uh, some of their better troops, out from the northeast, moved them round to the south to bolster that. And I think backed by a load of different elements of weapons that the US uh, in particular, but also France and Germany and the UK have provided. Um, and, of course, intelligence have managed to find a weak spot and push through. So does this uh, then have yep. the potential to change the course of the war? It de yeah, it definitely has the potential to change the course of the war. Um, what you're seeing is the the on the north. There's basically three fronts you can think of: it. the north, east, the east, which is Donetsk, and the south east, which is Kherson. And uh, the northeast has taken a, a significant battering in terms of the Russians, and uh, they've lost a fair bit of kit. They're all, we know they're short on manpower. The troops up there had low morale and cohesion. Uh, and there's a, a couple of weapon systems which have made the um, Russian Air Force uh, really dubious about trying to support their troops there. They've been supplied by the US and the Germans. And so um, what you're looking at is a Russian or a Ukrainian move into that northeast corridor, essentially, which then, once they're up there, it puts pressure on the Donetsk. You know, they'll turn, in theory, you would turn then and attack down um, into the Donetsk area as, you know, Lysyshansk and Severodonetsk, these cities that took the Russians a long time to take. 
Um, and what we're seeing is this sort of collapse so far. It depends how long it goes on for, but a collapse of Russian morale and cohesion. Um, I wonder what you'd say about what's going to happen now in the South, if that's where a lot of the Russian firepower is. Would you expect things to intensify there? It depends. What they need to, you know, the Ukrainians have to have one big risk, not to overextend themselves and then be counterattacked by the Russians. That's what happens when you, you, one of the main risks of advancing so fast. You're trying to, on the one hand, keep going, keep your mobile columns going, getting in behind the Russians, keep them off guard, keep them withdrawing. But on the other hand, if the Russians are able to organise themselves in any way, and I don't think they are this case up in Kharkiv, uh, then they would counterattack and cut off those forces. So that's the balance you're trying to do. Down the south, the geography is different. The troops, the Russian troops are better and the Ukrainians have been taking heavy, heavy casualties and not actually making as much ground. Um, I think the whole plan by the Ukrainian st- general staff was to do two axes attack and see which worked and then you reinforce a success. So we'll see. But the potential here is that basically Russia has lost a lot of men in kit. Uh, it's taken a severe psychological blow and it's probably going to have to be stuck on the defensive now through the next few months. That's what I would say mm-hmm. is what we're looking at. Dr. Patrick Bury from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tupperty Show, Ryan was musing over the weekend and the first of the Garth Brooks concerts in Croke Park. Also another great win for the fans of Stetsons and Cowboy Boots is Garth Brooks. You know what, I, I've spoken, it's only t- today, I, 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 everywhere I turn, I see somebody who went to see Garth Brooks. And they, I said, how was it? Big, beaming smiles of joy on their faces. Really, people, the, and I'm talking about cynical, hardened hacks. People who kind of go, who see no joy in anything. Who pick up their pen just to find something nasty to say about it. anything, anything. Even mother, you just no. That butterfly just is just the wings are too fluttery. So these guys, I thought they'd say the same thing. Ah, oh, it was just fake tan and hats and people smiling. It was horrible. Nope. All they said was the nicest things about um, Mr. Brooks, about the fans, about the music, about the hits, about the the vibe. Joyful. Joyousness. That's all I heard is just happy, 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 happy. In fact, I happened to be outside a bar on Saturday evening when the train emptied the Garth Brooks fans out of the carriages as they were coming home. And it looked like great fun. It looked like they'd just come from the set of a recording of Bonanza. You know, and, and out they came. One happier than the other for a last scoop before they said goodnight. And, you know... When you think about it a year ago or whatever, when we're all looking at our shoes going, oh, come on, what's going on? When are we, are we ever going to have music again? Any fun again? Any joy again? It was great. And it was nice before the winter of discontent that's coming down the tracks really kicks in that there was almost a last sting of the entertainment dying wasp. I mean, the bags of that metaphor mix up, but you get the idea, generally speaking. And sure enough, it, look at Alan Carr's writing for the RT Entertainment, RT.ie. Having lost 50 pounds, it was the Schvelt Brooks who took to the stage, dressed in boot-cut Wrangler jeans. <laughs> Expensive-looking black boots, a black shirt, and, of course, a jet-black Stetson that was regularly swept from his head to be held to his heart or so that he could mop his dripping brow. Brooks was as giddy as a bronco to finally be in Dublin. Halfway through Friday's show, he wrapped himself in the tricolour and declared, You came back. I love you. I love you. I love you. 
I love four. I love use. After emerging from a giant hydraulic spaceship at Croke Park in 1997 on Friday night, the man of the black hat appeared from beneath the drum riser, featuring two bass drums emblazoned with shamrocks and a lowercase g. That would drive me mad, uh, but I'll forgive him under the circumstances. No, honestly. He says, I'm not here to talk about the past, already matted with sweat as he was. The tears, and there were plenty of them, came later. I came here for one purpose, and that is to raise some hell. And what followed was a solid two hours plus that hit all of the right notes of his back catalogue and did not linger on his newer material. Yeah, there you are. So the reviews are in, and they're very positive, and people seem to have had a ball. And why wouldn't they? Oh, and Trisha Yearwood joined him on stage. Oh, thank you for, for filling me in on that detail. Well, wow, that's lovely. It was magical. Ryan Tuberty there, but did Jay Byrne think it was magical when he spoke to Claire Byrne in the morning? Well, he's back with a bang, crying with joy, wrapping himself in the tricolour, singing our favourite songs. I think it's fair to say that Garth Brooks is enjoying his run of gigs at Croke Park. This is just some of what he had to say to the thousands of fans who have been to see him over the past three nights. People as great as 2014 might have been, I can tell you right now, it could not hold a candle to 2022. Well, Rising Time, Shea Byrne has been to see him and he's with me in the studio this morning. How I thought you were talking about me with the tricolour wrapped around me and crying in front of the audience. <laughs> that was you, right? <laughs> it was me. Was you on... were there on Friday, was I it? I was there Friday. Yeah, we arrived Friday. So we went, we got into Dublin City around four o'clock, myself and my wife. We met a couple of people. We went for something to eat. The bars were decorated with, uh, I was going to say with tricolours, with tricolours and uh, American flags. There was um, barbecue food on. There was Garth Brooks. And every time a Garth Brooks song would come on, the crowd would start singing in the Pub. So it was electric. It was <laughs> the atmosphere was fabulous. Well, I heard Ryan talking about it earlier before we came on, and he was commenting on the reviews the next day. You know, and I was I was reading those as well. No one had a bad word to say about no, it. No, some very you know some really serious critics who would be serious about their music. I think what they did is they put aside their prejudice against the music, and they took it as a cultural event. Yeah, which uh, it was. You it know, was it was a cultural event because when I looked down into the audience and looked around, and I went up the stairs so I could see everybody. There, I would say forty percent of the gang who were there didn't know the words. To the songs and that was very interesting to me because you would expect that as a Garth Brooks fan you'd know the dance Unanswered Prayers you'd know the words like you do Claire um, and we'll find out in a few minutes uh, <laughs> If Tomorrow Never Comes but actually they didn't know the words mm-hmm. but they were still there to enjoy it because a bit like Electric Picnic they may not have liked all the bands who were in the lineup, but they want to be part of the event and that was what it was like and the atmosphere was electric outside and inside Definitely. And yeah, I, um, two people I know who are in their 20s went and they know nothing about Garth Brooks. They just went because it was a, a night out and absolutely converted afterwards. Just loved it. Just really got swept along by the whole thing. But I just want you to take us through the concert itself. He, he came on, I understand, about five to eight. Was that it? He came on. He was scheduled for half seven, which we, we reckon wouldn't be the case anyway. It would be 20 to eight, quarter to eight. But I think there was, with the numbers of people coming in and the numbers of people trying to get drinks on the pitch, the, the, the queues for, for drinks on the pitch were quite long. Um, I think that, that they had a countdown timer on the screen as well. So about five to eight. So the countdown t- timer started about 10 to eight. It started to count down. And then he has a deal, as I said the other day, he, his music streaming company was bought by Amazon. Mm-hmm. So the only place you can stream his music is Amazon. And it, the, the sign came up, Alexa, play Garth Brooks. And it started. Okay. So the smoke came up. Stage, just to describe the stage, the stage is quite simple. It's very large. It's a, sh- a silver stage, quite large with a platform that goes into the, not quite to the middle of the pitch, but 
heading towards the middle of the pitch, narrow walkway with a, a small platform at the end with a G on it, a small like G. Lollipop for, shaped. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Watch the YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> You're ready. And then half shell. And very simple, no gimmicks, nothing moving around the place except the drum riser came up, which is the platform the drum was on, and he was there, posed, ready to go, and out he came. Did he so, start with a strange song, though? He started with an unusual song, um, a, a song that people didn't really know, um, and, and the problem with that was the crowd didn't react to it. They didn't, they didn't, um, they didn't start singing, which you kind of would have expected them to to start singing that. Well, like it was he, all all day long. All day long. I don't know that. Yeah, don't it's know about that it's about getting ready for the weekend. So okay. he said Friday night, mm-hmm. but the crowd were like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's only when he went into rodeo to Pina Coladas, ain't gone up down till the sun comes up. Those songs that the crowd really react. So I thought, actually, thought the first song was a mistake, but it was it was trying to reference everything that had happened and that he was ready and we were going. Okay. For it, you know? So said, and then after that, he played two solid hours. Was that how it worked? Yes, he went straight through, which is quite unusual. He didn't do a costume change. He didn't go off while the band did a solo and change costume. Are now costumes aren't his thing, are they? No, but you know, sometimes they go and change the shirt. Yeah. Uh, or just for some reason to get off the stage, have a drink of water. But he stayed on the stage. So he mm-hmm. went through some of the classics and there were sets, you know, you could feel the, the movement in the albums and the different albums. I was only into the maybe 30 minutes in, he got into the real classics, the dance, uh, the river, unanswered prayers, if tomorrow never comes. Uh, and of course, friends in low places. Well, I think we have a little bit of the river because that was your highlight, that wasn't was it? That highlight for me, yeah, for many people in the crowd. And I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Like a bird upon the wind These waters are my sky So as predicted, did everyone have their... Oh, you're off again. Yeah, I can't help um, it. Did everyone have their phones they, aloft the phones with the lights? The phones came out. The lighting show was spectacular. There was a, Every inch of that stage was covered in lights. Rather than gimmicks, they had lights. And the lights changed for every song. The tricolour came up. He was framed in the tricolour. It, it was just super. But that particular song, of all the volume that was given to the, the loud, rousing songs, that was the most melodic sound I'd heard in the stadium. They, it was sung like a choir. Oh, and it was an emotional moment. And, and even the old cynical people I was with as well, who were just there for the crack, they were like, this is incredible. Shay Byrne from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ray Darcy Show, a new documentary film looking into the world of pigeon racing, Million Dollar Pigeons. Now, a new Irish documentary called Million Dollar Pigeons will be shown as part of the IFI Documentary Festival. It tells the fascinating story of the competitive world of pigeon racing and the million dollar pigeon races that can make a pigeon fancier uh, rich rich overnight. How many times have I said pigeon so far? Uh, the film star is pigeon fancier John O'Brien. How are you doing, John? John oh, Johnson right. Studio. Good to see you. How's it going? And the documentary is directed by Gavin Fitzgerald. How are you doing, Gavin? Good, Ray. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, watched it last night. Brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Congratulations Thanks. on it. Um, it's a brilliant documentary and you are definitely the star of it, John. Um, tell us a bit about yourself. You, you're a pigeon pigeon fancier. Um, I don't fancy pigeons anymore. But, but I, you will fancy them in the future. I will fancy them in the future. And, and you I have, have fancied them in the past. I have, yeah. yeah. And yes. uh, I'm a big advocate for pigeons and I, I just love them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I raced them for about six or seven years. And um, you've seen the doc, the reason why I had to get out. But um, yeah, I'll, be, I'll have them again in the future. Yeah. So, what's tell us about your relationship with pigeons? So, where did you encounter them first? When I was growing up, I was brought up in uh, Kevin Street Ivy Trust uh, flats. Um, I used to see them like back then. There was they were everywhere. There was a lot more. They never called them back then. They do now, but uh, there was a lot more back then. And 
my first interaction with holding the pigeon was, I think his name was Ivor Kennedy, the, the, the kid, and he, he was a lot older than me, but he had a racing pigeon in his hand. And I was just fascinated by it. And he, I remember him showing me the ring. Um, then when I got a little bit older, I always liked seeing them. I, like People seen them as flying rats, and I just seen them as pigeons. They were beautiful, yeah. uh, uh, even, even the strays, you know. And as I got older, <clears throat> I had a couple of experiences um, uh, with them. And there was a, a series called Taking on Tyson. And that was what gave me a big push to get them. Um, I also had an experience. Go on, Mike Tyson. What's Mike the relationship? Tyson, uh, taking on Tyson. It was a series that that was on a uh, Sky One at the time. Oh, okay. As he kept pigeons as a oh, child as well. Oh, yeah, right. he raced them, and um, it was about his relationship with pigeons and 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 him racing them. And I said, right, I want them. Right. Um, I had an experience on the Hill Atari as well. That that's featured in the documentary. Um, I used psychedelics. And I had an experience with uh, pigeons, and that okay. also gave me a big push. So, so, and and Leonardo da Vinci was involved. Yeah, um, I didn't know anything about Leonardo da Vinci um, until that experience out on the hill of Tara. and there was pigeons flying around, and it's very vague in my head at the moment, like you know. But uh, it was uh, it was what gave me a big push to to keep pigeons. You have to you have to explain more to us, John. I'm fascinated. Leonardo da Vinci was a, was a pigeon Leonardo da Vinci well. kept pigeons. Oh, did he? You know, right. yeah, so yeah. He was, he was fascinated with flying. Right. And the queen. Um, and the queen. The queen yes. kept them as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, Leonardo da Vinci kept pigeons, and he because he was fascinated with flying. Right. Um. So he wanted to figure out how to fly. Um. Uh, and did he come to you in this psychedelic trip? Yeah. And what? And in, in the Ventorian man, as the Ventorian man, he came. Right. And. Did he say you must fancy pigeons? Or no, no? Um, it's so hard to explain because I didn't hear anything. Right, I just felt everything. You felt but okay. When I came back, I wanted pigeons, and I was keeping pigeons. Right. Mm. So that was transformative then. That it was that transformative that day. Yeah, yeah. Right. Was, I don't really like bringing it up too much because people have a have a, an issue with hallucinogens and and because they're um, illegal. Yeah, because they're illegal. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's that's right. it. So, Gavin, what about your relationship with pigeons? Does Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci come into it? <laughs> I mean, I'm just fascinated by the world and and the the characters that are in it. Um, obviously, John, people like John are very interesting guys. Um, but yeah, it's it's an age old tradition, and um, it's something that's been around since you know the first message for the Olympic Games was delivered via carrier pigeon. Mm-hmm. So it's this age old tradition, and uh, the people are still doing it today. They tend to be like older men. And they're keeping their tradition alive. Yeah. But what was fascinating for me with this film is that how much money has changed the sport. Um, when I started the documentary, the most expensive pigeon in the world was was three hundred grand, and by the time I finished it, it was up to to nearly nearly two million dollars. Okay. So uh, you can see the the influx of money into this industry. Gavin Fitzgerald and John O'Brien from the Ray Darcy Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, the age on your birth cert may not be the same as the age on your body. With the always interesting Dr. Roseanne Kenny. Well, we all like to believe that the age we feel matters more than what's printed on our driving licence. But what if there was a number that could tell you the status of your ageing from a biological standpoint? Well, that's your biological age. And here to tell me more about it and how we can use it to stay healthy is Professor Roseanne Kenny, who's the head of medical gerontology at Trinity College Dublin, where she's also founded TILDA, the Irish longitudinal study on ageing. Roseanne, good to talk to you again. Thank you for joining us. 
Thank you, Claire. Good morning. So, for, first of all, for those of us who don't know and don't understand, what, what is biological age? So, so, chronological age is the number of candles on a birthday cake or on your driving license, as you so nicely put it. Biological age is the age that your cells and organs have. And it generally varies to a degree from your chronological age, the number of, of okay. candles. And, and the study of this, it's not new. Where did it originate? No, it's not new at all. I mean, um, it's well known from lots of different types of studies, both in humans and in animals, that we age at different paces because all ageing is is an accumulation of different diseases and disorders. Um, and we, we know that not, not everybody dies at the same time at the same age. And we know for a long time that things like sleep and exercise and diet influence or appear to influence um, why some people live longer than others and have less diseases, therefore, than others, which cause end of life. Um, so we've known all of that for a long time, but most recently then we've been able to drill down behind that original science into what our cells look like um, and what our cells look like in the context of people who are living longer and those who aren't. Now, we've trillions of cells and there are about nine major hallmarks of aging that we can see in a cell. Um, and there's a big, a big race on now to actually determine which of those hallmarks is most important for measuring our biological age. Is it, you know, our, there's a form of genetics which varies according to our lifestyle and lifestyle behaviours and some, to some degree genetics um, called epigenetics. And from that, we're able to develop biological clocks, and we've used some of these in TILDA to look at our biological age of participants versus chronological. And then there are some other things like the caps, which cover um, DNA, our, our genetic nuclear infrastructures, which protect them. That shortens as we get older, and we've been able to look at those also, mm -hmm. um, and we know that's associated with ageing. But I have to say, Claire, this is an evolving science. And at the moment, there are a number of companies which are purporting to be able to measure your biological aging, but any of us in the field know that none of the measures are accurate in terms of predicting how long you're going to live for. But you will get a sense of your overall health by looking at your biological age. Absolutely. And, and it's important to remember that some of the earlier measures of biological age have been around for an awful long time, like your cholesterol or the ratio of LDL, HDL cholesterol, like our blood pressure, like glucose and, and other um, measures of blood sugar, like hemoglobin A1C, or even your waist-hip ratio, in other words, a measure of, your, of obesity. They are all um, also biological age markers that we know an awful lot about because they've been around for a long time. So this is not about saying to somebody, I'm going to examine you now, do all of your bloods, check your cholesterol and I'll be able to tell you you're going to die in four years or not. No, no. And we can't definitively do that because as, as you and I have discussed previously, there are so many other factors which additionally influence the ageing process and our biological age and they're, they're much more difficult to 
be clear about than a blood measure like you know your perceptions you said it earlier how you are as young as you feel well there is evidence to show that um or or uh, as we've spoken on on uh, uh, regularly social engagement laughter um friendship taking downtime and less stress etc all of those factors influence the ageing process at a biological level. Now, there's a new paper uh, I know that you have examined about uh, looking at brain blood flow. And I know you find this really interesting. Explain yeah. to us what, what was discovered there. Uh, thank you. So so this was a really nice study uh, published in Frontiers of Neuroscience last week where they examined um, athletes aged 50 to 80 and then asked them not to do their usual re- uh, exercise, be they cyclists or runners, which is what most were, for 10 days. And they, they measured blood-brain flow uh, beforehand, when they were running and very fit, etc., and then after the 10-day period. And they showed a significant reduction in flow in the areas of the brain that we know are important for Alzheimer's dementia, for example, the memory areas and the concentration areas and the executive planning areas. And this is in people who are really, really fit, but they just stopped for 10 days. Isn't so they, that fascinating? They, it so is very fascinating, but the message is, 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 is rich and we know this from observational data. As we get older, we shouldn't stop <laughs> or slow down. We should actually make an attempt to do a little bit more every year within our capacity, not less. Keep moving. Oh, 100%. Keep moving. I've read a lot recently about balance and how important balance is for predicting how healthy you are, how fit you are. And indeed, when it comes to longevity as well, I believe it has a role. Why is that so uh, important and, and being held up as something that we should all be watching? Because it's a measure of our musculoskeletal health. And that's our muscles and our bone infrastructure. And our muscles particularly are really important um, if you like, building blocks for the, for the body. So the stronger our muscles are, the, the better our muscle strength is. Um, generally speaking, that's a good predictor for longer living. But of course, that doesn't happen by chance. It happens because we work on muscle strengthening, etc. So what should we be trying to do in order to test balance? Okay, so to test balance, um, first of all, eyes open standing on one leg for 30 seconds. If you can do that without any problem, you're free to go. Mm-hmm. The, next, the next is eyes closed for 10 seconds, standing on each leg. Now, now, don't despair if you're there trying this in the kitchen and thinking, <laughs> oh my God, I'm all over the place here, particularly when I close my eyes. As we get older, it's really common to, to, for, for unsteadiness to creep in with eyes closed. But you can, you can train yourself. You can rehearse this standing in front of the sink on one leg for 30 seconds per day, you know, pulling in the buttock muscles really tightly and that you will ultimately train yourself to do this. Why is it so much more difficult when your eyes are closed? Because as we get older, um, the three things maintain our balance. Our vestibular system, that's the balance centre in the brain, which travels to the middle ear. Our, our eyes, our vision, and thing called proprioception. They're little sensors in our feet, muscles, and particularly joints. And as we get older, with arthritis is really common. We know this from Tilda. And that actually puts off that lateral circuit, the sensors in our, in our joints. 
So, so when we close our eyes, we're taking away the second of the circuits which maintains balance, that's vision. So we're relying now on just the balance control from the brain and, and the proprioception, the, the sensors in the joints. And if you have a problem with the sensors in the, in the joints, you're much more likely to be unsteady. When our eyes are open, vision helps to compensate for any balance discrepancy. Ah, so, so you're exposing your vulnerabilities. Yeah. Dr. Roseanne Kenny from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, the build-up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol in America. Luke Mogelson was talking to Ryan about his new book, The Storm Is Here. Let me begin off with a word that I think, um, to me, sums up the raison d'etre of your book, if you like, and that is cracks. And the reason I'm mentioning the word cracks is because you spotted the cracks in the structure of the American body politic, if you like, uh, pretty much with the outbreak of COVID. Uh, Can we go there? Sure. I had actually been... Uh, reporting overseas for about a decade when the pandemic started and I was living in Europe uh, and hadn't worked in the U.S. during that whole period. So when I started seeing, you know, images and reports of armed groups entering state houses at the very beginning of the pandemic in April of 2020, I was intrigued, to say the least, and uh, flew back home for the first time in a while to see where it might lead and what was what was causing all of this communal rage and, and anger. And give us a sense of what you found when you landed. So I, I started in Michigan, where there was a kind of consortium of armed militias and other right-wing groups some of whom you you might have heard about, the Oath Keepers, Mm -hmm. Three Percenters, Proud Boys. And they were, even at that stage, again, in late April, early May of 2020, they were already both furious about the public health policies being put in place to control the pandemic, and also very scared. That was one of the things that surprised me. They were genuinely alarmed and fearful about what they viewed as an out-of-control government um, trying to incrementally persecute and impress them by putting in place kind of putting in place stricter and stricter constraints on on their personal freedoms. You you talk about, you know, people saying the PCR tests were extracting samples from people. The pandemic was a depopulation uh, agenda, uh, that there was a germ theory being a satanic evil, that Dr. Fauci had released COVID-19. And this is, this is conspiracy theory. I mean, conspiracy theory generally are quite mad, but this is another level. Yeah, that was surprising as well to me, uh, just how outlandish some of these theories were. And, you know, a lot of them were contradictory and, didn't really square with each other. But the underlying theme and kind of through line of all of them was that globalists, leftists, and and elites were trying to prevent Trump from being reelected. And how, how did this, in your research and, and uh, touring of America, this idea of conspiracy theories on the COVID situation, how did that conflate with then white power and let's call it what it is, racism? Yeah, well, there's a long history in the US of right-wing extremists casting their 
paramilitarism and violence and, and a narrative of white Christians being victims of persecution. And given the fact that that's obviously a historical and, and just doesn't square with reality, they're obliged to invent and fabricate these phantom menaces and villains and, and enemies and conspiracy theories that are constantly threatening their their freedom, their their rights, even their their very existence in order to stimulate and incite this fearfulness that is a precursor to their anger and violence. And with that in mind, every movement needs a leader. Uh, was Donald Trump that leader? Does he continue to be that leader? Is it as succinct as that? Well, Donald Trump is one of the first national politicians to really openly engage and endorse a lot of these conspiracy theories. But for a long time, you know, U.S. politicians have, especially on the right, but really on both sides of the aisle, have more subtly insinuated support for, for some of these worldviews. And Ryan asked Luke about the Proud Boys. And when, as you were watching the the march, if you like, to the Capitol, before it was happening itself, you saw Trump in the debates with President Biden, as he is now, talking about the Proud Boys, saying, you know, stand down and stand by. The movements you spoke about earlier, the three percenters and the QAnon, and a lot of these movements saw this as a clarion call, didn't they? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. My first encounter with Proud Boys was in actually in the Pacific Northwest and in, mm. in Oregon and in, in Washington State when they were really just focused on kind of street level brawls with anti-fascist protesters. And at the time they had a pretty minimal following outside of their small club. And they were also very afraid of mobilizing in public because of the counter protesters, but also because most Americans, you know, viewed them as extreme and dangerous mm. to society. But after Trump started endorsing them and boosting them on Twitter, they just really exploded in popularity. And it was a massive boon for their recruitment. And by the time January 6th came around, they had hundreds of thousands of followers on Parler, which was a kind of the right wing alternative to Twitter at the time. And they were completely comfortable marching through downtown DC, attacking pedestrians in broad daylight, vandalizing black churches. And this was taking place in November and December prior to the January 6th riot. So by the time January 6th came around, they were extremely emboldened. And that you know, had happened really over a compressed period of time uh, just throughout 2020. So they were emboldened and they were enabled, you kind of saw the storm coming, perhaps, in a way that the rest of the world didn't, which made it all the more shocking for us watching it. But you were kind of shaking your head, maybe thinking, I saw this coming. Well, it was interesting. You know, like I said, there were these two previous pro-Trump rallies in Washington, D.C., one on November 14th and mm. then another one on December 12th. Mm. And all the same groups that ended up storming the Capitol and the same individuals were at those preceding events. And they committed serious violence in Washington, D.C. against counter protesters, against 
black and gay, just bystanders and pedestrians, and also against law enforcement. So by the time January 6th came around, anyone who was paying attention at those previous two events, mm. which unfortunately was not a lot of people, it was clear that something bad was going to happen. And, and that's kind of what made the unpreparedness of law enforcement that day all the more confounding. And Ryan asked Luke about his feelings on the morning of January 6th before events unfolded. You know, I, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. As I said, I knew that there would be violence and I knew that it would probably be more intense than what I had witnessed on November 14th and December 12th. But I wasn't sure that they would attempt to attack the Capitol. I had heard some rumors about that, but I think it's important for people to keep in mind at the time, those groups, those pro-Trump militarized groups, QAnon, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, they were really focused throughout 2020 and up until January 6th on anti-fascists, mm -hmm. Antifa. Mm -hmm. And Trump and his allies had put in a lot of work casting Antifa as these kind of supervillains and really, you know, exaggerating and inflating the menace that they represented to the country to cartoonish proportions and then conflating Antifa with Black Lives Matter mm. and all of the racial justice protesters that were mobilizing since the death of George Floyd. So a lot of the violence that I'd seen hadn't been directed at the state. It had been really focused on leftist activists and protesters. And I had assumed going into January 6th that something similar would happen. And even the Proud Boys and, and others had put out statements in the lead up to January 6th, uh, talking about how they were going to, you know, destroy Antifa and uh, and continue this kind of running street battle that had begun in D.C. on November 14th. So there was this kind of nebulous, amorphous rage just looking for an outlet. And during his speech on the National Mall that day at noon, Trump just directed all of that energy up the mall to the Capitol. And he told them specifically to go there. Let's um, remind ourselves of that. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. And that changed everything, Luke. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was understood by everybody in the crowd as a, a direct order from their from their leader. And, you know, when he said that, I was standing in the middle of the mob, the crowd, all the people around me started chanting, uh, drag them out. And there was almost in a kind of ebullience, like it was a crazy energy because it wasn't just anger. It was also kind of excitement, a thrill and, uh, and happiness, really, that Trump had gone through with it and actually given them license to attack the government. You were in the middle of that. When does a crowd become a mob? Uh, that's, that's a really good question. You know, I don't know that you could pick an exact moment, but basically I left 
shortly before Trump finished his speech and started walking up towards the Capitol. And everybody, uh, most of the crowd had already started going that way. And by the time I reached the, the foot of the Capitol steps, there was a very, very dense crowd of Trump supporters facing off against police, trying to prevent them from going up the steps. And it was already what I would describe as a mob in the sense that there was this intense electric communal energy being expressed in violence, you know, full on hand to hand combat with the police, mm. blood on the stone slabs, people pelting law enforcement with bottles and other projectiles, linking arms and ramming their backs in, into the shield wall of the riot police. Um, screaming insults. And for me, I think that if you want to um, spell out what made that a mob and not a crowd, it was the impunity that comes with anonymity for the individual participants mm -hmm. and, and, and a real sense that they could do whatever they want and there wouldn't be consequences. Because remember, at that time, you know, most of the people, most of the true fanatics who were at the tip of the spear there, they thought that Trump was going to remain in the White House and they were going to prevent Biden from taking office. So they weren't concerned about the ramifications of their of their actions. And Ryan had this question for Luke. What struck you as being the most bizarre, peculiar and discombobulating experience in the few hours that you were there? <laughs> That's a tough one. Mm. You have um, so much choice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I entered into the Capitol building with the mob through through a broken window after they had overcome the, the police line outside. I ended up eventually in the Senate chamber, which had been recently evacuated. And uh, that was a quite surreal experience just because it's this iconic space um, and it had been converted into this kind of circus ring of demented abandon. Like you, there, there you had the Q shaman with his horned headdress giving speeches and reciting prayers from the dais and the desk that Vice President Pence had just recently occupied. You had at one point a couple dozen rioters kneeling among the senator's desks and praying together asking Jesus to keep Trump in power. You had, at one point, a couple officers also entering the room and engaging in what to me was a totally bizarre, almost chummy way with the intruders. So yeah, I guess if I had to pick a moment, it would probably be, be the Senate chamber. And to top it off, there was also one of the writers in there that I was kind of following around and recording. He was from Alabama and he he had a uh, rubber bullet pellet embedded in his cheek because he had been shot in the face by an officer while entering the Capitol. And it, there was just blood gushing down from his face the whole time. And at one point, he just sat down on the floor and leaned his back against the dais and called his dad in Alabama to <laughs> told him that he was in, in the Senate chamber, wow. not sure what to do next. So there were almost kind of uh, comically surreal moments throughout the day. Luke Mogelson, the book is called The Storm Is Here from The Ryan Tupperty Show. 
And in the afternoon, those issues with Aer Lingus. Joe was talking to people stranded around the world on Liveline. OK, let's travel the world with Aer Lingus. Emer, where are you? I'm in Bulgaria. And where are you originally from, Emer? Ballyfermot originally. And when were you due home? On Saturday night, we were due to fly okay. home from Bulgaria. Of, what part of Bulgaria are you in? Sunny Beach. Sunny Beach, okay. Uh, Muriel Barnwall, where are you from originally, Muriel? I'm like you, Joe. I'm a dog living in Kildare and stuck in Nice You're in stuck. Kildare. And stuck, I know what they yeah, in Nice in France. We were abandoned by Erlingus. And when were you due to come home, Muriel? We were due to come home on the EI545 that Erlingus still have not even made contact okay. with us. Shirley is in WhatsApp. Shirley, where are you from originally? Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm from Kimmage. And, where, and uh, where we are, you are stranded. We are in Turkey, five of us. And when were you due to come home? We were due to fly home on Saturday evening uh, around 10 o'clock. OK, back to Emer in Bulgaria, in Sunny Beach. Emer, when... When did you discover that there was a major problem with your flight on Saturday? Not till we got to the airport, Joe. Um, I'd rang Erlingus about an hour before we left to go to the airport. And I got through eventually to the customer service. And I was told in certain terms, don't be ridiculous. It's only logical we're going to bring you home. When? And they were his words to me. So off, I said, so I'll head off to the airport. Okay. We got to the airport and at 9.30, exactly when we were due to check in, it came up cancelled. 9.30pm in the evening? Yes. Okay. Okay, Muriel, what was your experience in, in Nice on Saturday? Hi. Our experience was we were at the airport since about 12 noon, had okay. a nice lunch, went down to the boarding, did all, you know, with your book. We had no contact. We had nothing. We, we were there. We were never told. All we were getting was eventually was delayed. And we were eight hours waiting. But our biggest problem was we never got any information at half past 11 that night. And don't forget that Nice has a lot of, I'm elderly myself, we have a lot of elderly people. Okay. And I just kept telling them, they, we got nothing. And all I want to say is, only for the airport staff, I'm not sure if you saw the video we sent you, from the airport staff in Nice had to put us up on camp beds with food boxes because they could not contact Erlingus. They were embarrassed. They felt sorry for us. The only thing we did get at about 8 o'clock was a 20 euro voucher at one stage. That was fine. They said we can do nothing. And the flight coming in behind us had been obviously got the hotels. So we were, we were, we still, my point is, Joe, we still have not officially heard a word from Erlingus. I sent an email yesterday. We could not get through to customer services. It was the airport staff that gave us the number. We were families in Ireland were living in all weekend. But, Joe, mm -hmm. this morning at about 10 o'clock, we rang the number and we got a nice guy called Stanley. God bless him, he hadn't a clue. And we were saying, hello, you know, that was it. And he was saying, well, we would... So my friend was with me said, what would you do? We had to... Thankfully, our cards weren't maxed. We had... We walked into a hotel. It's a hotel over here, the hotel... 
7 o'clock in the morning, we walked from the airport, red-eyed, and felt so sorry for us, they actually gave us the room immediately. And they're so decent, they've let us stay till 4, and they're going to bring us to the airport when they heard our story. Okay, now, uh, Shirley O'Neill in Izmir. Shirley, when did you discover that uh, there was a problem? <laughs> So, Joe, we didn't know. Uh, like those other ladies, we went, we got our transfer to the airport and um, we didn't know we got to the airport. We went through, we got in line, as you do with the Aer Lingus desk. People started to come behind us because we like to get there early. Yeah. I'm traveling with my three aunts and they're in their 70s and one is in her 80s and she had wheelchair assistance. So she was in a wheelchair and um we started, people started to pile up behind us and then all of a sudden people started to, to there was rumblings or saying, oh, someone said there's a cyber attack in Erlingus and that, you know, these planes are cancelled. And I was like, oh, my God, rang home and uh, my son-in-law told me that, yes, something had happened in Erlingus and that all flights were cancelled. But when we went on the we- onto the website, it, our flight was still scheduled. So we stayed in line. After about two or three hours, different people were hearing different things and some of the the group fell away and decided to book in for the night. But it's still no official confirmation from Erlingus. The flight still didn't come up cancelled. So after about three or four hours, uh, airport staff, again, they weren't Erlingus staff, came over and they took numbers, not names, not passports, just numbers. How many people in this group? Three, five. Now, at this stage, Joey, you may picture the scene. An empty desk, nobody there from Erlingus, no communication, no information. And you have two people from, I don't even know what airline they were from, possibly airport staff, arranged a bus and brought us to a hotel. Again, didn't know where we were going, didn't know what was happening. Um, and we were dropped at a hotel, which I am grateful for. I listened to that woman's story. But at the same time, another bus came in behind us. And we're all lined up. The, the hotel obviously wasn't prepared. We we thought we were staying here for the night and we're still here. And different stories going around. I hear I believe there are ninety-five of us here in this hotel in Izmir in Turkey. Okay. And um we still don't know if we have to pay for everything. Well that's Shirley on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on Today with Claire Byrne, financial expert Owen McGee was talking about the problems people find themselves in when they reach for the credit card. But first one, we want to talk about credit cards because a lot of people are finding themselves in this situation too much month left at the end of the money. Yeah, absolutely. And you're kind of looking at your bank account and you're going, I still have a week or two weeks or sometimes even worse than that until I get paid again. And most of us do get paid monthly. Like there's 85% of people is what it's reckoned get paid monthly as opposed to weekly. But it can be really difficult and you're looking around and the one thing that you have to be careful of is, is where you reach for it to get, where do you get the cash from in terms of how do you get food on the table next week? And we do have to be aware that things are bad now, but we are not getting the big energy bills that we're expecting to come in the next couple of months. So if you haven't reached the credit card yet, I'm hoping you're listening to this and you're going to go, "Okay, what other methods have I got? The one rule of thumb when it comes to borrowing money and people say, oh, credit card's not a loan. It is a loan. That's Mm -hmm. what it is. But the one rule of thumb that comes to, to mind for me is the easier it is to get the loan or the credit, the more expensive we expect it to be. And that is so clear. If you think about it, Claire, the last time I was in here, we were talking about the rigmarole you have to go through to get a mortgage and all the the barriers that are there and the length of time it takes. The reality is the mortgage is the cheapest form of credit you're going to get in your lifetime. 
Credit cards are so easy. They're revolving credit. You put the money on them and it's a very quick fix and they work on the basis. Now, credit card companies won't tell you this, but I believe they work on the basis. Nobody thinks the future is worse than today is. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying very clearly today is, is we already know that the energy costs are going to be worse in the future in the next couple of months than what they've already been. And people need to be very careful about reaching for the credit card on the premise that, oh, look, when I get my bonus or when I, if I get a pay rise, I'll fix it then. Don't store up problems for the future by your reaction today to what's going on. What about using it as an overdraft? So I'm going to pay my bills with this credit card. I get paid the end of the month. I pay off the credit card and I do that every month. So I don't actually end up paying any interest. Yeah, but I'm going to be honest with you in my anecdotal experience from doing 20 years of this. People don't do that. Well, you probably have about 5% of people who do use credit cards and they they use them properly, if that's the word to use, where they say, I put the money on it. I then clear it off in full and it's free money because I'm not paying any interest. And if you do that, that's great. And you know what? If I was a credit card company, I'd want those five five percent of people to be shouting it from the rooftops this is how you can do it so other people that the 95 percent of people are saying i could do that too Mm -hmm. the reality is even for those five percent of people who clear off their balance every month they will it will be the first thing that they say if something goes wrong it'll be the first i won't clear it in full this month i'll just clear some of it and then you're on the spiral and the minute you do that you're on the spiral so you referred to there earlier the cost of borrowing on your credit card Mm. just run us through yeah, the so, interest rates. So let's just say mortgages are kind of up to 4%. Then you've got personal loans and car loans kind of up to 10%, let's call it. Then you've got overdrafts kind of 12 to 18. I'm being very general here, 12 to 18%. Credit cards will go up to 22%. And that's a lot. Now, there are more expensive forms of credit. Like one of the things people often get caught out on, and particularly, and I know we're kind of over the back to school, but if you've forgotten stuff, buying stuff from online clothes shops that give you credit mm-hmm. can be 40 42%. It can even be more expensive again. The old school, remember the stuff that used to come in as a catalogue through the yep. door and now has moved online? That could be incredibly expensive credit. So just be really careful when someone's, as I said at the start, when someone is offering you credit or free money, it's unlikely to be free. So just be very careful. I own McGee from today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Payback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.